Uh, and I'll start with a prayer here. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. And I pray that you would help us to know and understand what is what you've written in your scriptures. Pray that you would guide this time and bless it. I pray, I thank you for the teachers that have gone before us and for your word, that you have sent both the word and the teachers, that we can know and understand what you say, Lord. And we thank you that you have given us a standard to, of your word to which to base our, our thoughts off of. I just pray that you bless this time. I pray that it would be in glory to you. And I pray, Lord, that it would be accurate to what your scripture says. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right. So just a, a quick, what we're going to be talking about today is, is humanity's role in salvation. And what I want to really go over, I guess, is a quick introduction um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Craig Amundsen. I've been going to this church for a little over a year now. Uh, I came from a uh, basically an emergent church. When I found out, talked to the pastors, and found out what they really believed, I realized I needed to leave. And so my parents and cousins were actually going here, so I came to this church. And this PowerPoint talking about humanity's role of salvation where this came from is at the time I was in the emergent church after I had realized what the, the false teachings of that church and it started coming here, Eric had been going through the book of Romans and I had studied, uh, been reading and, and listening to Eric's sermons and understanding what the book of Romans said. And when our group started actually going through the book of Romans, they actually asked me to teach on it. And when we got to... Romans, we started going into Romans chapter 3, we started getting into the concept of the doctrine of election. And there was a person in the group who strongly disagreed with that viewpoint and wanted to debate on it. And so this PowerPoint was originally created for that purpose. Um, I praise God that he's given us teachers like Bob and Eric who can help us. Bob has been um, important in providing some of the slides for this PowerPoint, so thank you, Bob. And uh, unfortunately, we weren't ever able to have the, the debate in the group, but I'm thankful that I can at least share it here with you guys today. So, to start out, before we even get into the doctrine and the scripture verses here, I think we need to have an explanation of how does God give revelation to man. So there, there are a couple of viewpoints that I've seen around, and uh, we can give Bob credit for this slide because he initially used this um, this slide in his uh, presentation against Greg Boyd in Open Theism. So viewpoints that I see are as man may subjectively experience with certainty what is not revealed in Scripture. Man claims to certainly know what God has not revealed in Scripture. Man claims to know that God does not certainly know all that is hidden. And Scripture contains all that God has objectively chosen to reveal as certain. I think we're going to find that only one of these is really true, and this is important for determining what our Christian worldview and what our Christian thinking should be. So, I'll start off with the first point, and I've got some scripture verses we'll go through. If everyone wants to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 4, 6, uh, while you're turning to that, I'll also go over Hosea 6, 5 and Ecclesiastes 11, 9. Uh, Hosea 6, 5 and Ecclesiastes 11, 9 aren't actually on this PowerPoint are on your handouts, but they are on my PowerPoint because I was 
looking at for additional verses last night. So, so while you're looking up First Corinthians, I'll read Hosea six five, which says, "Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets; I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light." So, instance, what it's God is essentially showing there through the prophet Isaiah, it's it's by the words of the mouth that his judgment comes. And Ecclesiastes 11.9 here says, that re, it says, Rejoice, O young man, this is Solomon speaking, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. And I think this shows that if we foolishly walk around according to our own ways and what we see as being right, instead of following the standard of what God has given to us through his word, that we will find judgment. And that's an extremely scary place to be when you consider we'll be judged by the Almighty God. So now we'll go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and I'll read this one and then give some application to it. So 1 Corinthians 4, 6, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. I think what's really key in this, this verse here is Paul's warning not to go beyond what, not to go beyond the scripture, not to go beyond what God has written. And that's essentially what this few, first viewpoint, what a lot of people think you can subjectively experience. So this is feelings-based, subjective truth. People, well, what you believe isn't what I believe, different truth. But we need to have one standard that's guiding everything we say and, and where it goes. Uh, if we go beyond Scripture, how are we going to know what's true? No, two people can agree on everything, especially since we have sinful nature. And so we need that standard. And that standard is the truth that God gives us through his word. So I think we can effectively eliminate this, I, this point. It's not a subjective experience. And I know a lot of emergent churches are getting into that with the labyrinths or need to experience the Holy Spirit with fusion jazz or something like that. I mean, that's, 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 that's not how we learn about God. All right, so let's look at the second viewpoint here. And that is the claim that man claims to know certainly what God has not revealed in Scripture. And so if everyone wants to look at Deuteronomy 29, 29, we could also look, or we're also going to look at uh, Luke 10, 22. And in Deuteronomy 29, 29, uh, this is an important, important scripture verse talking about uh, the secret things of God. So in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do, may, we may do all the works of this law. So I think this clearly shows that only that which the Lord reveals to us can be known, that which God does not reveal to us cannot be known and can't be searched out or divinated. It's, it's only what God reveals to us. 
and humanity would not know anything about God unless God had spoken. And we can see that throughout Scripture. Uh, Romans 5 kind of hints at that. Uh, we also see that in Job, where everyone's arguing with each other, well, God is doing this because of, it must be because of this, but then God actually comes and speaks, and then people really understand what's actually going on. So another verse to, to kind of point this out, this is Luke 10, 22. This is Jesus. Um, and this is right after, well, see, I'm thinking of a different verse. So Luke 10, 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. So it's only God who knows who God is, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's God having to reveal who he is to everyone else. And we won't, it's, it's clearly pointing out that we won't know unless God reveals it to us. So I think through this, we can also disprove that man can know what God has not revealed. We can't. It's the secret things of God. So let's look at uh, the next claim. Man claims that God does not certainly know all that is hidden. The two verses I have here is John 16.30 and Isaiah 46.10. So while you're returning to that, uh, starting off with the John verse, this is right after Jesus has explained to the apostles about his... He's predicting his death and resurrection. And so he's talking about, soon you will see me, and then you won't see me, and then you'll see me again, and there'll be weeping in that time. And Jesus is explaining this to the disciples. And so at the end of this, after Jesus does his explaining, the disciples say this. This is John sixteen thirty. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So Jesus clearly knows all things. So this is especially a view that the open theists would tend to claim to, where they say that God doesn't know everything, uh, God's not fully in control of everything, um, hence why some things are unpredictable because God is limiting himself to give humanity free will. And I don't think Jesus, well, the disciples even are pointing it to, pointing to Jesus that they understand that God does indeed know all things. And... Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God knows what will happen from beginning to end. So this is literally encompassing all knowledge. And he talks about from ancient times, the things not yet done. If God didn't really know anything coming in the future, then how could he accurately predict the future? And this is why prophecy is so powerful, because especially like what Eric's been teaching us about the, the book of Daniel and how it's, the number of days is perfect from when the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Christ. It's accurately predicted to the day. And so clearly God knows what he's doing and knows exactly what's going to happen. So I don't see this view as being scripturally based either. So I think we've eliminated all three of those. So let's look at the final viewpoint and see uh, what it has to say. So the two verses that I have for this are Second Peter 1, 19 through 21, and 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And here in, 
and what I think we'll see is that the words of God don't come from man, but that they come from God only. And only by God's word can we even get a correct interpretation. So this is Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. And it says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, pointing out nothing is coming from man, everything is coming from God, and it's coming from the word that God has spoken. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 also says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may, complete, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's by the word of God that we are made complete and equipped, and it's not by the works of man. So the scripture is quick, that equips us to do the work of God. So we can say that this view, last viewpoint here, that Scripture contains all that God has objectively chosen to reveal is certain. That is true. And this is important for us to understand because as we go through and try to understand what the doctrine of election is and understand what the Scriptures actually say about it, we need the Scripture to essentially point us in the right direction. Because otherwise, especially in a topic that has seen a lot of controversy in the church, I looking through scripture, I think there's certainly a definitive answer to what the scripture talks about. Um, but we can't let our feelings get away. I've seen that before when debating people where they say, oh, well, God just can't be that way. Well, let's let God say what he's going to say about himself and let God determine what he is and not let man do that. Because ultimately what that's falling into, if we are determining what God is saying and what God means, then that means that we are putting ourselves over God, and that is ultimately idolatry. <coughs> All right, so now let's start getting into the meat and potatoes of this. Uh, how is salvation obtained? So there are a lot of different viewpoints. I'm going to kind of try and boil them down into two categories, uh, and that is one given through the gospel by the Holy Spirit. So it's basically the work of God alone, and that was what we call monergism. It comes from the Greek word mono, meaning one, and erg, meaning to work, so one work. is a term for the belief that the Holy Spirit is the only agent who affects regeneration of Christians. And then all the other views are essentially going to boil down into what's called synergism, Greek word sin meaning together and erg meaning work, so working together, and in general, meaning... Essentially, what they're pointing to is the gospel plus something is going to equal salvation. So that, in general, may be defined as two or more agents working together to produce a result not obtainable by any of the agents acting independently. So it means they have to rely on each other. They're not in and of them by themselves. So a couple of views that I know have kind of fallen under this, we have uh, under the synergistic view, Pelagianism is essentially the view that man is not fallen and is completely capable of doing right, uh, doing what is right in and of himself. 
So there's no original sin. Um, man can do everything. And there's semi-Pelagianism, which is a view that came afterwards. So that would acknowledge that there is sin, but the power of sin is not strong enough that man cannot overcome it. So uh, by himself, they believe God gives salvation based on man seeking God, not necessarily by God's grace. We also have Arminianism. So they would believe that man is dead until the gospel came. And then at hearing the gospel, you somehow entered into this intermediate state, which is basically it turns into semi-Pelagianism. So now you have ability to come to God after hearing the call. And it's of your ability, it's not of God. So, and it's one other important thing to point here is that the person can choose to accept God's call or reject God's call. So it's all man-based. There's also, within this kind of view, is open theism. So that's the belief that God has limited himself to allow for human free will. And as a result, God has limited foreknowledge of what will happen in the future. And they also believe the fall was unplanned for, something God didn't see coming. And as a remedy for sin, God sent Jesus to bring salvation, but it's only, it comes to those who choose him. So again, more human free will, human cho- man choosing. Uh, and then I know kind of the last few that Eric has kind of talked about in some of his other sermons. Uh, essentially, he's talked about federal headship, which is the view that man is certainly dead in his sins through imputation of Adam as our first representative and it's through the imputation of Christ that our sins, Christ paying the payment for our sins on the cross that we are ultimately saved. And so unless God acts specifically on the person through the Holy Spirit, um, that person isn't going to come to salvation. So salvation is going to be by grace alone. So a couple things I want to really keep in mind here. For synergism to be correct, the, the core, when you boil everything down, the core of their beliefs are, there's two views that are going to have to be proven by Scripture for that to be right. And that is that man is indeed capable of coming to God by his own abilities, so the works of man, and two, that God's providential will is going to be rejectable. And so those are the things that synergism is claiming, and we'll look at Scripture to see if that's true. Now, if monergism is correct, then we should see that man is incapable of coming to God and that God does the work of calling people to himself. It's to God's glory alone. So let's start unpacking the scripture and looking through this. Uh, I'm not going to be going maybe as in-depth as Eric or Bob might in actual grammar or anything, but I think the scripture speaks for itself. Uh, I'll be going through the verses, maybe giving some high-level viewpoints of it, um, we'll, and then I'll try and let the scripture do the speaking. So let's start with our first point here, and that is, does man have ability? So I'm going to start with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 here on the slide. Pay special attention to what is highlighted in the red. It says, for grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are of his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So 
I don't know how many people here are familiar with the concept of grace, and maybe people need a refresher, but grace is getting what we do not deserve. And that's ultimately what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we'll get into some more context later showing the fallenness of man. But um, we are certainly deserving of punishment by God for our sins. And there's no reason that God needed to, to save us for our rebellion. So we are getting what we do not deserve through our salvation in Jesus Christ. So this verse clearly shows that we are saved by getting what we do not deserve, payments of our sins on the cross, by God himself in our place. And it's by faith that God's promises are true. And if it is not by grace, it was not by grace uh, if there are works of men. So the works of men would clearly be refuted by this works, by this verse. And in fact, it says that at the beginning of verse 9. It's not of works, and it's not of ourselves either. Man cannot boast in his salvation because he did not play a role. So this is contradictory already to what synergism views play off of. If you can choose to be saved and come to God, wouldn't that be to our glory? But this is not what is taught here. It is instead shows the glory of God alone. And it also shows that uh, we were created in good works for which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this would suggest more toward the, the election and the predestination view. So let's look and see if, if there are other verses. Continuing on with does man have ability, here's Romans three ten through 12. And it's, it's, it says here, this is uh, the Apostle Paul speaking, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So here Paul, Eric's talked about this before in, in his uh, previous sermons on Romans, but I'll give a little refresher. Paul is talking and combining Psalms 14.3 and Psalms 53.1-3. through 3. And what's really interesting and extremely powerful about this verse in these verses is that the Bible actually gives us a quantity. Zero. Nothing. <laughs> There's no one. There's no arguing about it. It's absolutely zero. And if you look at Psalms 53, uh, God even talks about that he's, he's looked and there's nothing. Nobody. So... There's literally, there's no way to debate this. Uh, it's without a doubt that no person would ever come to God of their own ability. And this has even been stated since the Old Testament, and it's even reinforced and reaffirmed here in the New Testament. And I think uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20, another verse, even further reinforces this. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and ever sins. We have Romans 3.23. All man has fallen short of God's glory, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this verse is a, is a very powerful argument against human ability, and it's actually a verse when I've debated other people in our group, it's the one they can never refute. It's, uh, there's just no way to get around it because it actually gives a quantity. And it's very specific about what it says. So this is another verse that really points to humanity not having ability to come to God. Let's look even further. Uh, here is John 1, 12-13. It says, But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is at the beginning of the book of John, and Bob's been teaching us about John. And it starts by the book by John starts his book by explaining who Christ is, uh, and not only is that he's God, and but also the light, which is the key to the whole book of, of John, is Christ being the light. And it's also noted in the verses right before this in ten eleven that he came to the world, but his creation did not recognize him as the creator. Instead, what's clearly shown here is only those who God gives the ability to see recognize their creator. And so we can see this verse is very clearly demonstrating that who you are or what you are or have done does not get you to receive Christ, who were not born of the blood. So it's not a genetic thing or something that gets passed down. And it's certainly not the will of the flesh nor the will of man. But in fact, based on these verses, well, by the will of God alone. So it's nor the will of man, but of God. So it's by God alone. In fact, these verses suggest that the will of the flesh and the will of man are actually in opposition to God, because if it's not of the will of the flesh and not of the will of man, but it is the will of God, then those two must be in conflict with each other. So man doesn't have ability. So I think now that we've gone through these points, it really shows that man does not have ability. There's, there's nothing that we can offer to God. There's nothing that we can do to get to God or seek after. We don't even seek after God. That's how serious this problem is that we have. And so I think that the first, the first point we talked about synergism needing to be true, that man has ability, is false. And so therefore we've already disproven synergism. But uh, we'll, we'll put some more nails in its coffin. So I want to I wanna talk about now can God be foiled. So that was the second thing we said synergism needed to prove was true in order to be in order for it to work. So that means that God's providential will can be rejected. So let's uh, start off here with Job 23:13. And it says, "But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does." So I think this verse is already showing us that if God is wanting to do something, it's going to happen. There's nothing that's going to stop it. In addition, God doesn't need to answer to anyone why he's doing something. Well, who are we to judge God? And Paul uh, talks about that in Romans 9. And it's talked about in several other verses uh, throughout Scripture as well. Uh, let's look at, at Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases... He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. So this, we can see that God is in complete control over all of creation. That includes the earth, heaven, the sea. And uh, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the deep places there is probably meaning Sheol. So uh, God is literally over everything. And whatever he is doing, that is, gonna ha- is what's going to happen. It's doing what he pleases. Uh, another example here, Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So I think Romans 11.29 is showing us that God's call can't even be revoked. Uh, if he calls someone, that call is not going to fail. If that's part of God's providential will, it will happen. So one other thing I'd like to talk about here is especially a question that would be brought up in the Arminian viewpoint, is they would, they would ask you, 
Well, one question, uh, what about 2 Peter 3.9 or 1 Timothy 2.4? Because they would claim, well, does not God desire all men to be saved? And is this desire not being fulfilled? So they would say, well, isn't that, mean, that, isn't that proof of free will? God's desire obviously isn't being fulfilled, so therefore free will. And so I think to understand this and be able to refute it, we need to talk about both the moral will of God and the providential will of God. So God's providential will is something that cannot be rejected. Uh, so for example, uh, it would be the rejection of Christ. It was prophesied long beforehand that Christ would be rejected. Uh, and it, So God clearly foreknew what was going to happen, but it was all part of his plan. And uh, God, an example of God's moral will, and I know Eric and Bob have talked about this, would be like the Ten Commandments, which can be violated. We can sin. So I think when Second Peter 3, um, 3.9 or First Timothy 2.4 talk about people being saved, it's talking, or talking about all people being saved. It's, also, it's showing God's moral will, but it's also showing God's character. So God is not someone who enjoys sending his creation to eternal judgment. However, all being saved is not part of God's providential will, and that is shown by Luke 13, 22 through 30, and the prophetic books on the end times. And if, if you remember Luke 13, 22 through 30, this is the narrow path and the wide path. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation, and wide is the path that leads to destruction. So Jesus himself is pointing out that he's not a universalist and that all people aren't saved. So um, I think these verses also show, well, it shows that God can't be a universalist. And some additional examples uh, of this, uh, I'm pulling this out of Bob's uh, critical issues commentary on the foreknowledge of God, which is where he was refuting Greg Boyd's open theism. And so he gives an example in 1 Samuel 8, 9 through 17, which is, this is where Israel rejects God as their king, and they want a human king over them. And so God tells Samuel that the people have rejected him, and he predicts accurately all the evil things that the king is going to do over the people. So God knows what's going to happen. And then what we see happen is after these, these things actually do come to fruition, like, for example, it was prophesied that the king was going to take the men to go off to war. Well, Saul does that, and he's going to take fields for himself. Well, Saul does that. And so then we get to 1 Samuel fifteen eleven, and God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Well, some would argue, well, God obviously didn't know what's going on, but God did predict what was going to happen earlier on. And so I think this regret is also showing this concept that God is sad to see these things happen, but it's still part of his providential will that they were going to happen. This was part of God's judgment on Israel for rejecting God as king and choosing man as king instead. And so now these are the consequences. And so it grieves God, but he's still sovereign, still in control, and it's still according to his plan. So God certainly knew what Saul was going to do, but he's still still sad to see it happen. Another example here would be Christ's lament over Jerusalem. 
in Luke 13:34, he says, "How and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh how I wish to gather your children together, like a hen gathers her chicks under his wing, but you were not willing." And so, and, and so Jesus, uh, in fact, before this, so he's told he, he saw this would happen. Uh, is especially shown by quotes of Jesus in Matthew thirteen fifteen, which is citing Isaiah 6, for the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So, and I think what, what's really, if you look at the contents of what what um, Isaiah 6 is talking about, and I'll I'll give, um, Adam's been talking about this recently in his Bible study. He's talking about how God's commissioning Isaiah, and he said, you will go tell these things so that they don't come back. So God clearly knows what's going to happen. He clearly knows that they're going to reject him, and this was all prophesied beforehand. So God can certainly be sad to see these things happen, uh, but it's still part of his plan and his providential will. Sure, go ahead. Eric? This is just dynamite stuff. Thank you. Um, just to add to your case, too, I know at Romans 9.19, Paul asked the question, well, then, why do you still find fault for who can resist his will? And it's exactly what you're pointing out. The will there that's being referred to in Romans 9.19 must be God's providential will because people do resist God's moral will all the time. But the question when he says, for who can resist his will, well, that question has to be a rhetorical one in which the implied answer is no one. And so it's exactly what you're saying is no one can ultimately resist God's providential or what we call sometimes the decreative will. No one can. And uh, so it's just another further verse that su- supports exactly what you're saying. Thank you. Sure. And, I, and I think, again, what Romans 11:29, it's very clear. The, the calling of God is irrevocable. It, it cannot be denied. If, if God calls someone, it's going to happen. I also like to think of, uh, I've used this example when t- uh, debating uh, people before, is, well, what about Jonah? Jonah clearly tried to resist God's will, <laughs> but didn't God make him go to the Ninevites? If it was up to Jonah, he would have gone to Tarshish and would have been gone. <laughs> and then again, yeah, to Bob's point, is Jonah even laments that he knew it was going to happen. He knew the Ninevites were going to repent of their sins because that's, it was God's will. And so I think that's further evidence against, you know, can God be foiled? Well, no, he can't. So even point this farther, here's a couple extra verses. So we have Isaiah fifty-five eleven. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. God is telling you that his word, it, it doesn't fail. It does what God accomplishes. Here's Daniel uh, 4.35, and this is interesting because this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, who was a wicked Gentile king, and he's recognizing this after the prophecy that Daniel gave him of his insanity comes true. And Nebuchadnezzar speaking says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, he does according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can question God. And it's interesting that even a Gentile king recognizes this. 
So I think we've gone, clearly gone through and we've disproven both of the points that we said we needed to prove for synergism to be accurate so we can say that synergism is false. So now let's start looking at the viewpoint of monergism and see if scripture supports monergism. And I think we've already proven the first point that humanity is not capable of coming to God in and of itself. So the first point is good. So now let's see if God does the work alone. So I'll turn us to uh, John 16, 7 through 11. It's talking about the Holy Spirit's role. And this is uh, Jesus speaking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will not send him to you. And when he has come, he, the Spirit, will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you will see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So I think this verse is clearly supporting that the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing the convicting. So that would suggest it's by God. Let's look at a further example on the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. So that would suggest that it's the Spirit that can only again know the things, or through God that we only know the things of God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. So the unregenerate man isn't receiving what's from God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Further evidence, not only does it the Spirit who needs to reveal it to us, but it's also showing us that we have no ability to understand it without God's help. So the things of God are foolishness to man. Only by the power of God can man realize that he is actually the foolish one. Further example of the Holy Spirit. Here's Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, we have to be in the Spirit in order to live according to the things of God. And those who live in the flesh and who have quote-unquote, human ability, aren't going to be going to God according to his terms. And so I think this verse is, again, clearly demonstrating that those who are in the flesh cannot please God ever. And this is consistent with, with the Romans 3 verse that we saw earlier, and it's also consistent with Romans 6, where it talks about that we are slaves to sin before our conversion. So now I'm going to go into... I think we've kind of shown that the Holy Spirit is indeed the one and who is causing regeneration is through the work, all through the work of God, through the will of the Father, the act of the Son, and also through the Holy Spirit causing regeneration. So now I'm going to go through and, and give uh, specific examples of where these words are being used in Scripture. Uh, so that you can actually see that when people do talk about predestination or election, that it is actually there in, in word form. The authors specifically choose these words for reasons. So the first word I want to look at is prorizo. So the definition there is, is from the, the Greek lexicon. Uh, it's to predetermine or to decide beforehand. So that's the actual Greek word. So let's see where it's actually used in Scripture. So here's Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. 
to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined, there's our word, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, there's our word again, these he, he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So it's showing God's doing the choosing and God's doing the work. And it's nowhere mentions anything about man in there. So the Greek word uh, that Paul uses here literally means to predetermine beforehand. So this is not God looking into the future and seeing what's going to happen and then choosing based on people on their, because of their choice. It's literally God has pre-planned and predetermined everything that has, is, and will take place. Here's a further example of where this word is used. Here's Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. So just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the word, the world, so pay attention there again to before the foundation of the world, that we should choose him and without blame before him in love, having predestined us, our word again, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So it's also to the good pleasure of God's will. It's God's choice. So notice, again, before the foundation of the world, and it's clearly God planning and choosing before the world was ever created. So I'm not joking with you guys. This stuff is really there. (laughs) Here's another word, eklego, which uh, definition from the Greek lexicon there, I pick out for myself, choose, elect, and select. So John fifteen sixteen, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. It's God choosing, not man. Here's another one with the same word, uh, with the eklego in it. So Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and there's the before the foundation of the world again, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Uh, keynote here is that we are chosen before the foundation of the world, and we just, we've just we been seeing this repeated over and over and over again, and this isn't the end of it. There's, there's lots more verses that aren't even in this, this presentation. Uh, for example, uh, Revelations 13.8 and 17.8 also talk about the book of life being predetermined before the foundation of the world. So I think the concept is very clear that God has predetermined all of this and before the world was even created, before man could even do anything. God had it all planned out. He knew everything that was going to take place, and he's in complete control. First Thessalonians 1.4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God another instance of God choosing. Here's another Greek word, haramai, to take one's for self, to, to prefer, choose. And here's where it's used. Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks to God, always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Uh, again, just over and over again, we see the, this verse is showing God choosing from the beginning. Sanctification is also coming through from the Spirit and from the truth of God's Word. It's an act of God. Another word, 
lectos, which means picked out or chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen, for many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, the Matthew verse here is is another mark against universalism. Uh, it also would suggest the universal call and the effectual call that Eric and Bob I know have talked about. So, uh, again, there's many are called, but few are chosen. God is doing the choosing. Romans 8.33, who shall bring against a charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. It's the God who's doing the justifying. If God is the one who justifies us, God has no equal. So if we're justified by God, then there, there's no way that anyone can bring a charge against us. And these verses also show that man cannot be justified by his action. It's by God alone. Further examples of electos. Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Shows that as the elect of God, we are to act differently from the world. But again, it's pointing to this election. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Shows we are chosen, we are called, and we are to proclaim the praises of God. But it's to the glory of him that he calls us out of the darkness that we are bound to until he saves us. So one of the questions that I've been brought up then, I, I think we've pretty clearly proven that the doctrine of election is in the scripture and it is what the scripture talks about. So people bring up this concept to me, well, how dare you speak about this? God is unloving then. Because then, you know, God doesn't give a fair chance to everybody. Well, what does the scripture say? It says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has... Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And in John, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. I would ask you, how can God be unloving when he laid down his life for his enemies, that they be saved? If Romans 5, 8 through 11, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Key note there is we were enemies. That's what's incredibly loving about this, is we were enemies of God and he died for us. So we, I think we need to be careful not to judge God and his actions because our personal feelings don't necessarily align with his. We, we have no right to talk back to God. God's response in Job chapters uh, 38 and 41, through 41 to Job when he was talking back to God essentially and saying, well, I want to counsel with you, God. You're unjustly afflicting me. And we know from those chapters that it was actually Satan. It wasn't God who was actually doing the work. So Job was unjustly accusing God. And what's interesting is that God doesn't even tell Job that. He just says, I'm in control. I do what I please. And you need to accept that. And that was enough for Job to accept it, and it should be enough for, for us as well. God isn't doing anything that's unjust, especially when you consider the fact that 
that all of humanity is in deserving of judgment because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 9.20 also talks about this, where Paul was talking about this very subject, and he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? It's, we, we have no right to judge God. It's God's creation, and it's, it's God's plan, and he can do whatever he wants. And we, we're not God's equal or even above God. That would be idolatry to question him. And just further thinking of this concept, is God unloving? Well, what has God done for us? Well, didn't he come down from his throne and humble himself by being born of a virgin into the likeness of sinful man? He came down and was among us. He lived a perfect and sinless light despite all the evil and the temptation around him for our sake. Despite the fact that we reject him and we sin and are completely fallen and are in need and are going to be under God's judgment unless we repent, he lived a perfect and sinless life for those who will repent. And he died on the cross. He took the nails and shed his blood to pay for our sins that we justly deserve to be punished for. He was bodily raised from the dead on the third day is proof that he was victorious over sin and death for our sake. He bodily ascended into heaven where he makes intercession for us to this day for those who repented and, he, and, and believe in him and he's also preparing a place for us as he promised. And he will be coming again to permanently do away with all sin for eternity. He will judge those who are not repentant and for all eternity he will free us from the power of sin. And that's all, all stuff that he's doing for us. So how can we say that God is unloving? So what does this mean for us? I think we need, we need to be thankful to God that he's chosen us. Because uh, there's certainly no reason that he had to. We have nothing to offer to God. Second Corinthians 9.15 correctly says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Uh, we, need to, we need to look at this, and we can't be ungrateful of what God has done. We need, should be grateful instead. Uh, Romans 6.17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, there's that slaves of sin being stuck under sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, being delivered by God to the correct doctrine. So we were opposed to God, we were slaves to sin, yet we obeyed from the heart because we were regenerated by our deliverance from sin by the work of God. So another thing that people have brought up when, when we've talked about this concept is, well, what does this, and what does this mean for us? Well, they would come out and say, well, if God predestines everything, then why do we need to do anything? God will take care of it, obviously. Well, yes, God certainly could do that. Uh, Jesus hinted at that where when the people were praising him on the Palm Sunday, the Pharisees said, well, make everyone quiet. And Jesus said, well, even if, the, if I make the people quiet, the rocks are going to, to scream out. So, yes, God could do that, but that's not an excuse not to preach the gospel. We have been chosen by God to spread the good news over all the earth so that God, those God wills to call will be saved. And this is, uh, this Romans 10 verse is a specific example of that. It says, this is Romans 10, 14 through 17, How then shall they call on him and who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, 
who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And what's interesting is that Paul is talking about this right after he talked about in Romans 9, the concept of predestination and God, God's will. And he's telling us here why we should be indeed going out and speaking uh, about the gospel. Uh, we also remember back to Ephesians 2.10, for we are of his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only does this verse show us election prepared beforehand, but it also shows that we were made to do good works in Christ. So I, I think the other thing that we really need to look at here is, uh, is further evidence that we need to be preaching the gospel is 2 Timothy 4.2, which says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. We need to preach the gospel. And yes, God does indeed predestined things, but that's no excuse for us to throw up our arms and rebel against him. He's given us a command. We need to follow it. So I hope that kind of clears up everything. I've also left a reference slide here on uh, at the end of the PowerPoint so people can look at where some of this has been retrieved from. And I think this really clearly shows that synergism, this work of man coming to God, and that man can thwart God is, is not the case. In fact, in Job 42, uh, right after God reveals his sovereignty to Job, Job says, I'm a foolish man. I realize that no, nothing of yours can be thwarted. And so God cannot be thwarted, and man doesn't have ability. So therefore, it's by to the glory of God alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, through the word of God alone, by mercy alone. So I think that's very powerful in seeing what the Scripture actually says, and it needs to be the Scripture that defines this, and I think it's very clear on this topic. Brian. Um, I believe that people who don't believe in monergism there's a element of pride where even though God says no, no one is good except one, and they'll say that they're sinners in need of a Savior, they yet will believe that there's, there was some small element of them that was good, that, 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 that uh, was the impetus to move them into salvation. Now, I'm assuming that everybody right here in this room believes in monergism. But for other people, if we look from a experiential view as well, and I'll just use myself as an example, of course, I'm an extremist, so, so other people won't have the same experiences, but before I came from darkness into light, there was no reason for me to turn from my sin because I didn't think I was sinning. I, there, there would be no reason for me to repent because I had nothing to repent of. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came into 
my thought life or that spark or whatever it is that you want to call it as probably is the same for everyone. It wasn't until then when you look back from being transferred from darkness to light that you realize what a sinner you actually were. And I know Romans 7, kind of, Paul talks about that of, of the law, uh, where he talks about that it's through the law that we, we understand our sinful nature and realize that we haven't met up to God's uh, standard, that we are indeed fallen. So that, I think that's really showing to that. And then it's also, show, once we realize that, we realize that we need, really do need regeneration from God. Um, going back to slide number six, does man have ability? That first sentence, but as many as has received him. To me, that sounds like an active thing rather than a passive thing, which would be as many as have been given, been given him. I don't know if there's any significance to that or not. But I don't know if you have any comment on that or not. Yeah, it's John 1, yeah, 12 here. It, yeah, it could be. Can I comment on it? Sure, sure. Yeah, here's the deal. I've, I've been going to, I got sick and I got sick and I got sick, but I'm still above ground. I was <laughs> planning on writing an article. There's this passage. I looked up decomai, which means to welcome. And there's a verse... I think in Thessalonians, where it says, uh, because they did not welcome the love of the truth. Right? Okay, so in the Bible, Jesus is the truth. I am the truth, Jesus said. John 8, 44. They, they, they prefer the lie to the truth. So the general universal call puts the truth out there if we do it, right? It's right out there. And I want to tell people, welcome the love of the truth. Once, see, that's, it's not like our part, but it shows that God's at work. And if we put it out there, some people will go, oh my. I've heard uh, Brian's story over here where, when he was a new Christian, he, he was he, he, he was the big enemy of these Christians that were right next to him. They couldn't believe he got saved. I was the same way. I'll show you a picture one of these times of us in 1972. I was the big enemy of the Christians, but here I was saved. But when the truth smacks us in the face, okay, the love of the truth is a gift from God. But do we welcome it? Or do we get angry and de determine to fight Christians the rest of our lives? And I also, that's a good question, though. We actually end up doing something after receiving grace. We receive him because his Holy Spirit did a work in our heart. Uh, let me give you an example, because I've spent 40 years you know, with, it had to change my own views. If synergism is true, it doesn't matter if God's part is 99.99999%, zero happens. Okay, 
So the only one who determines anything is man. That's, well, that's what it is. I know you're not saying that, but I'm just trying to help people understand. Okay. 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 The other thing that I, I've never been able to understand is that is when someone asserts that you know God from the eternity past, you, 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 and you, then other 99% of the created beings that He created are going to hell through no no ability or any you know God just determines that that is going to happen. So I'm not judging God, and I, I resent anyone even you know thinking that. But I'm trying to understand God and His Word. But using the limited, you know, mental ability that I have, to me, that would seem unloving. Is God unloving to send those people to hell? It sure seems like it to me. You know, he, He's created them from eternity past to, to spend eternity in hell. And I've got so many deceived and unsaved, you know, loved relatives and friends that... Uh, it, it just it boggles my mind to think that God created them to spend eternity in hell, and it, it's just God's absolutely can do whatever He wants to. Uh, you know that's not a question. Well, I answer, you want me to. And so he he certainly seems to be unloving toward the repentant, yeah, no, towards the unrepentant, and only He can make him repent. No, it's it's a very good question, and it's so difficult. I'm gonna have Eric answer it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, something, Steve, I've, I've wrestled with this as well, and one thing that's helped me, and maybe this isn't helpful for some, but to distinguish between God being the instrumental cause of sin, which he's not. So when you and I sinned, we did it of our own volition. So, right, so the, the whole issue then is, yeah, because we're not, he's not the initiator of sin, you and I are, we're the rebellions, the, I should say the rebels, we're the, right, so the point being then is he is the architect, but he's not the instrumental cause of sin, remember in James, let no one say when they sin, they're being led astray by God, for we're each led astray by our own lust, that's the, really the issue, and so to me, it gets back to what Craig was saying earlier, left our own devices, none of us could be saved, and so... Yet you're right in the sense that God is the architect of the overall plan, but he's never the instrumental cause of why we sinned. That's always left to us. Um, Our famous uh, elder that we had here, Jim Palmer, he got into a debate with a man who said, you know what, I can't stand that God would ever send one to hell. And Jim Palmer said, well, it's our sin that sends us to hell, ultimately. And if God is not the instrumental cause of that sin, it's ultimately our fault. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's where Romans 9 comes in, where God actually has to say to us, he has the right to do with his creation what he wills. Exactly, and so that's where the ultimate answer is, is he is going to be glorified by those whom he demonstrates his wrath upon, and he's also going to be glorified by those whom he shows his mercy. And you and I have to accept that to say he has the right, yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, yeah. It seems that way to us, but but see, Americans, and I love America, don't get me wrong, but in our world, fairness seems to be the most important thing. Yeah, I, mean, I think the same 
Okay, let me just give you the best answer he can, distilling all of it from Scripture. God allows evil. He didn't decree, yea, thou shalt be evil. Okay, why did, did God know it would happen? Yes, God allows evil. God uses evil. Now, I'm gonna, now we're going to go through this in Ephesians, so this is a good preview. Stick with us, and let's together agree this is very difficult. This is not what we tend to think. But God gave us Ephesians. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And their concern was that the devil and the demons and the wicked angels were going to destroy them. Are we safe or not? And open theism doesn't make us safe. I brought some along. Greg Boyd prefers shamanism to Romans 8.28. And, and the world we live in today is more like the world they lived in when Paul wrote to the Ephesians than it's probably ever been, at least in America. Greg Boyd, I heard him on the radio I was driving, listening to KKMS. Greg Boyd bought time. He was on there railing against Romans 8.28. What a wicked verse. Christians quote that. They're weak-minded. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't know who I was. I ended up debating him. Okay? No, Romans 8.28 is there to comfort us that we're safe. Otherwise, the devil, the demons will get us. God allowed evil. God uses evil. Does he? Was evil men that crucified Christ? God overcomes evil. Does he? He raised Christ from the dead for a greater good than would have been had evil never existed. That's hard to understand, but that's what the Bible claims. There is a greater good. I promise all of you on the authority of God's word, and thank you, Craig, this is so well presented. And when we're in eternity, you just look at Revelation. What are they saying? In the, the redeemed, it already knows what's going on. Praise you, God, for the praise your glory. In that, that first part of Ephesians 3 through 14, three times in the Greek it says, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glory. I don't understand it now, but I know that when we get there, and I almost got there, so did you, Steve. <laughs> so somebody says, well, cats have nine lives. I'm losing count. I'm getting pretty close to that. <laughs> but when we get there, it'll be to the praise of his glory. Ryan back there. I was just going to say one thing about God is love. I think it was in one of R.C. Sproul's books. He said that God is love, but love is not God. And I think we have to be careful when we start talking about love and talking about God. Yes, God is love. God tells us and shows us what the definition of love is. I think, Craig, you gave us some great examples of that. But we have to be careful, and I'm not saying you're doing this, Steve, that we don't say, well, God is just love, and then that's all he is, and he has to fit within this category. And I know you're not saying that. And he has to fit within this category of what I think love is. And we have to look at the whole of Scripture and what it's saying and that God, yes, he is love, he shows us love, but he's not bound by what we think love is. And we have to look at the whole scripture about what God is. And I think, Bob, like you said very astutely, that 
God does all these things for his glory, for his purposes, and he is the one who's in control and has all these things planned out. And we need to, you know, if we have questions, which I don't think I have all the answers, I don't think really anyone here maybe necessarily does, but we look at God's word and we need to let that be what changes our minds and our interpretation about what God is instead of, you know, coming to this with our own kind of preconceived notions. Right, and pointing out like what we saw on the first slide, that it's by scripture that we have to determine these things. One more question. Paul also struggled with that in uh, Romans 11. He was thinking about how Israel had rejected Christ. They were the original elect. And he said, um, again, did they stumble to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But of their transgression means riches for the world, and the loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? And finally, he goes to the doxology. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who will bring his counselor? Who has ever given to God? So, I mean, ultimately, Paul struggled with this, but he just looked to God and said, you know, you know everything. All right. I guess we'll, we'll close here. Uh, thanks for everyone for the questions. Uh, hopefully you learned something. So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this uh, study. Um, we know that it can be a, certainly a tough topic, but I hope that, that through your word and through the work of your spirit, you, uh, that people understand uh, what said through your word. We thank you for your word that you've given it to us. We thank you for the people that you provided to preach the word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not only given us your son uh, and the, to redeem us from our sins, but also the, the Holy Spirit uh, that we might come to know you. And I just thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord. Uh, thank you for all that you blessed us with. And I pray for a good rest uh, of this week. Thank you for what, the day that you've given us, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.